everyone. I hope you are enjoying fall. It has certainly been a beautiful harvest moon month, and I'm coming to you just the last few days of September. I want to share a few poems about the month and the moon that we've been enjoying. And today I have another installment in the Deeper Rhythms series with my good friend Zach Kampf. He is a therapist here in the Asheville community, among many other fascinating roles, so I'm happy to share that interview with you. We actually recorded this in early September, and because the maidens are, took longer to tell, um, I'm not posting this till almost the end of the month. So a few poems and thoughts on the harvest moon. Harvest moon Conjure the image, the feeling, orbed honey, liquid gold, mighty ascension, shimmer, shimmer, pull, gravitational tension, arrival, relief, mirror of the alchemical mysteries, sing to us of embodied home, gathering gold. Align with the natural state with the elegant wonder, asking only to remain in the consciousness of flow. Align in this way, purpose, spirit, soul. It really is this simple. Align. At the full moon, I wrote this about the harvest peach. Late harvest peach, fuzzy rub against my top lip, ticklish, I linger. Closing my eyes, I see the past rays of summer. I hear bits of laughter, my tongue touching the dry soft, which is instantly the wet skin. Then, explosion of sweet, gentle tear, nick the pit. Pull away. I open my eyes. I swallow the moon. And lastly, for the waning moon, ever-present in the fullness, ever-present in the satiety, ever-present in the round, is the black, the emptiness, the hunger, the sliver. And today, I trust this. I hope you enjoy the interview. At its conclusion, I'll just let the music carry us home. And until next time, take good care. My guest today is Zach Kemp. And he and I are good friends uh, from grad school. Well, I'm speaking for myself. I consider you a good friend from grad yeah. school. And we went to Pacifica Graduate Institute a few years back in the depth psychology and Jungian program. Um, archetypal, let's see, what was it? Jungian DJA, what was that, Zach? Depth psychology, <laughs> what she is knows. that? What's our degree? <laughs> I think it's in it's in depth psychology with with, a, a, with an emphasis, emphasis in union and archetypal studies. Archetypal studies, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know what we spent so much money and time doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> no, I I'm so that was a real pivot point in my life, that program. And it was it's so mm. dear to me. And I just, although I left after completion of the master's and you've gone on um, and you're in the midst of your dissertation process, that whole 
perspective just changed my life in every meaningful way. And it's just, it's influencing all the work I do now. It's influencing how I navigate relationship and parenting and everything. And I'm just so grateful for that. And you and I connected there. I've always thought of you as a younger brother. And for those of you who have been following my podcast, um, Kelsey Reap, who I interviewed several months back, she is a sweetheart. And we had a great interview in this Deeper Rhythms series. And Zach and Kelsey are partners. And they, in fact, recently just got married. So it's lovely to have all these connections to you. And I'm just going to jump in and let Zach take the reins here because he is super busy right now and has scheduled this time for us today and keeping our conversation to around an hour will be difficult because there's so many cool things Zach is up to. But I just welcome you. Thank you for being here. And basically, you know, we're just going to touch on what you're doing in the world in terms of your day job right now, because obviously that's super important, but you have a lot of projects that you're that you are nourishing along the way and doing when you have time in addition to your dissertation. So I just want to dive right into that. And of course, you know, we'll end with the Proust questionnaire to get a little window into you using synchronicity. I've got the dice right here. We'll let the dice pick. Yep. (laughs) So without um, any further delay, Zach, welcome. Please just tell us what's going on with you at the moment our connection, if you want to touch on that. And um, like, let's start with what you do uh, for a living right now. And then we'll Mm -hmm. move into your other projects. Okay. Okay. Well, yes. Thank you so much for having me. Pacifica was life changing for sure. can definitely view my life with like a clear demarcation of like before Pacifica and after Pacifica, life and personality and everything. So my life post Pacifica, I've been working in mental health. I did community mental health for three or four years and then made the transition into private practice doing individual psychotherapy beginning of 2021. So I've been doing that ever since. I'm part of a really awesome team here called Resilient Mind Counseling. Uh, group practice that we all um, provide psychotherapy in a <laughs> in the time mm-hmm. of the world where everyone needs a therapist. It seems so. Oh, so true. So <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. Resilient mind counseling is that right? Mm-hmm. Resilient mind. So, like, if somebody wanted to find you as a practitioner, they would look at. Is there a website? Resilientmindcounseling.com. Yeah. Yeah. There's resilientmindcounseling.com. And then I have my own website. I think it's just zachkampf.com. Yes, I definitely. (laughs) Been a while since I've looked at it. (laughs) (laughs) I will definitely add those links um, in my show notes for people that want to connect with you. Your website, by the way, looks fantastic. I was just on it a little bit ago and I love, I love it aesthetically. And of course the different aspects that you are, um, covering, and we're going to jump into that. Just a couple notes on your, your day work. What are you sensing? Let me just ask it this way. Is there a broad theme that you're picking up on people? Like, 
in in the midst of this pandemic. Are you seeing anything emerging that's somewhat consistent among people, or do you just have garden variety? <laughs> I guess why I ask is I I've been reading a lot of folks talking about loneliness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in general, people are more isolated. People are more uncertain and anxious. Um, so there's definitely broad themes like that, like isolation and and just general, like, I don't know if it's exactly anger, but mm. um, tension. There's, it's like there's a palpable tension in culture in the air in the atmosphere and it's like if if under more typical circumstances everyone has a certain bandwidth to like be able to direct their own psychological experience you know to Mm -hmm. to be able to be angry and choose to let it go or whatever like so much of that bandwidth right now is taken up i feel like by the tension in the culture and in the world Mm. that the the day-to-day individual stuff people just have very little room left to manage it without becoming a little unhinged (laughs) that's a really um that's a really interesting viewpoint and and how to say that it makes perfect sense there and i've heard people using that term bandwidth i just don't have any Mm. more bandwidth i've heard people say that a lot recently so i definitely think you're on to something is there is there something in particular that you're encouraging folks to do regarding <laughs> that? I mean, I, <laughs> it's a really good question. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny. I was, I was just talking with a colleague. We were doing some peer supervision and yeah, the, I, I think there's a number of therapists around that are f- starting to get a little disheartened mm-hmm. in working with clients. Um, because when the when the world is functioning and you can really help somebody focus on you know what is in their control you know how how can they have a mindfulness practice or whatever it might be you know to to address their side of the equation the way they relate to the world you can't change the world with i mean you can but it's difficult <laughs> but you, you can you can get more immediate results by changing the way you perceive the world relate to the world, whatever it might be. Um, it's in the moment right now, it's, it's tough as a psychotherapist because it, it feels like there's, there's only so much you can really do on that end, you know, like, and the rest of it is just like, yeah, I I hear you. It sucks, you You know? Yeah. So I think just helping people, I try not to spin things in an overly positive way or like push to like do a gratitude journal you know yeah when when you just got laid off and all these (laughs) other number of issues that people are facing it's like no I mean we can just accept that it sucks (laughs) right now and not everything has to be great all the time and we can just be in the suck for a while exactly that's so important. I, there's a, when I take our dog for a walk in our neighborhood or when I walk myself, there's a, a family that has a, a wall where they leave. It's like a retaining wall mm-hmm. and they leave out um, sidewalk chalk and, and they encourage people just to write whatever on that. And I just saw this term yesterday. Somebody had written 
um, like say no to toxic positivity. And, uh, yeah. and I, I think that's what maybe you're saying. And I hadn't, that um, term hadn't occurred to me before, but yeah, that's kind of, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's important not to say, oh, let's always just put an upbeat note on this and to not just acknowledge where folks are. And the thing I find, although I'm not in clinical work, but from the C.G. Jung perspective, this quote just always stays with me about how he approached his clients. And, and I'd love your perspective on this. Um, because I certainly, I work more with people in terms of more of a life coach kind of, you know, not clinical, but more um, in that vein. But I love, and I try to keep this in mind when he said that whoever was with him in the office or in the consulting room was just as much there for him as he was there for them. Mm -hmm. And um, there was no accident, right? in in those two people coming together and furthermore he said that if he could solve quote unquote solve what was going on in the client in himself that he didn't even have to say anything in the Mm. space of their time together that that healing would just translate so i do you remember um that perspective from studying his work and and what do you think about that yeah i i do remember he a lot of people kind of overlook transference like it kind of it gets addressed in a fairly shallow way in a lot of programs at least it did in in my social work education not so not so much at pacifica but um yeah the, i mean he really took seriously the idea i think there was a quote about like when two people meet it's like a chemical reaction and Yes. If if there's any connection at all, then both are are transformed. Um, so there is uh, more of a emphasis on the role of the, not just the therapist using some modality, but being a person, yeah. <laughs> you know, in yeah. a relationship. And yes. I think I don't know. Jung was a pretty evolved individual. I don't know if I'm at that level where I <laughs> could just like work out in my mind my clients' problems. I don't, <laughs> Maybe, maybe when I'm 60 and more Jung like <laughs> right now, I don't know that I can tap into that capacity at that level. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, that's that's a very humble and important <laughs> perspective, too, for sure. Uh, do you ever feel like this has happened to me in and I would definitely say it's along the the learning arc of me interacting with people in a respectful and honoring way is that sometimes I really it's really important for me to just really remain quiet and and I have gotten better at that instead of jumping in and saying well you know consider or you know asking a gentle question or whatever just remaining still and not flooding into that space with anything other than hopefully a more palpable presence of my own and even leaning into that discomfort a little bit you know like old programming in my mind that says you've got to make all this right or you've got to help here or you've got to does that dynamic enter into your work or are you more relaxed with that I know each therapist or each you know social worker would have 
you know, sort of their own way about that. But does that ever come up for you where you feel like it's better for me just to remain still right now, even if I want to say something? Yes. Yeah. There was an acronym that was tossed around in a training I was in recently that was really good for this. And I'm not going to be able to remember what it is because my memory is terrible, <laughs> but it was something like, it was something like what? Oh, wait, and, wait, why wait, am I talking? Yeah. Yes, that was it. Why am I wait, talking? Yeah. Wait, why am I talking? So that's that's been really helpful for me um, because like, this is why I think it's so important for therapists to do their own work and be in therapy. Um, yes. Like part of doing my own work in the past was coming to the realization that I definitely have a savior complex. Oh. <laughs> and so in those moments, you know, when somebody's talking about how difficult their life it was already, and then every single rug that's been pulled out from under <laughs> them from external circumstances in the last two months, that savior plec complex within me is like, give them something now, like, you know, fix it for them now. Um, and that's when I use weight. And yeah. Um, yeah, when I like if I ask myself, why am I talking? It's because like, I feel uncomfortable that I can't fix this right now. I don't, I don't like feeling their suffering without being able to offer something yes. tangible, like right away. Yes. <clears throat> and, and I think some of that's what you meant by like, if he can resolve on his side of the equation, like if I can just tolerate my own discomfort and quiet the <laughs> the inflated savior within me for a few minutes, often, you know, the client will move through something. Yes. Given enough awkward silence <laughs> that I, I could have just talked over and we would have, wouldn't have got there, you know? Yes. I, you said that perfectly. And I do think that, I mean, if I can speak to what Jung was thinking, I do think that's what he was getting at. It's like we, our own stuff comes up. And if we can be with that, and I also heard therapy described beautifully. I, I can't attribute this because I'm not remembering where, uh, but, you know, to your point about a therapist doing their own work, it, that's like the greatest gift you can give your client is the fact that mm -hmm. you are ongoing doing your own work. Because just in terms of like that uh, mirror, uh, mirroring and resonance and just sort of like being with your brain in the session, like if you are functioning at a somewhat uh, peaceful and, you know, effective rhythm, if you will, folks are tapping into that just in terms of that mirror resonancing going on between the two of you in ways that we're not even saying out loud. They're just kind mm -hmm. of, you know, dropping into your vibe, if you will, and, and having that experience for the 45 minutes or 50 minutes. And they're, they're functioning in a different way. And of course, everybody has to integrate this and make this their own. But we experience this all the time when we're around people that we feel peaceful with, or mm -hmm. that we feel stronger with, or that we feel bolder with, or more um, able to be vulnerable with it's we're plugging into something that is not um, maybe as tangible but it's affecting both people there and I, I mean you're never going to 
be without a growth opportunity in this line of work for yourself yeah. as yeah. well. You know, it's just a, it's an incredible journey. And, and how do you take care of yourself? I, <laughs> so you don't burn out. Um, well, I have a dilemma between like, I take care of myself by like following my passion, but my, my passions are strong and I end up be, it ends up being a little bit counterproductive because I take on too many things. So mm -hmm. I'm not the best at self-care. I remember when I, I worked at a, uh, a crisis center basically. And I remember one of my first supervision sessions, my supervisor was like, okay, what are you doing for self-care? I just laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess most of my self-care is knowing there's an end game to whatever project that is consuming me at the moment and, mm -hmm. and being, um, being intentional or proactive about like when, when I get this done, I'm, I'm going to take a month or whatever it is to like, oh, okay. Yeah. Chill a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very nice. Speaking that was a perfect segue about your passion projects. I know you have several mm -hmm. and I'm just going to tick a few off that are definitely on your website at Zach Camp, Z-A-C-K-K-A-M-P-F.com. And again, I will have those links in the show notes, but I would love to hear what your heart wants to talk about in terms of your dissertation work, which I know is on the 27 Club. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a Dionysian aspect, I'm thinking, to that, unless it's changed a bit. You have a podcast called Dionysia in the works. You have something called Death Coach, uh, Dream Groups. You work with astrology. So like all of these are rich podcasts in and of themselves. So just dive in any place there, whatever's leading right now that you'd like to share with us, because it's all fascinating. It's all interrelated. Yeah, so I mean, the, the most pressing thing for me right now is my dissertation um, on the 27 Club. For people that don't know, the 27 Club is kind of like a, a meme that emerged in around like 1970 um, when Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and Jimi Hendrix all died in an 11-month time frame at age 27. And that, I, I guess, kind of the emotional impact of that on the public that adored those figures created a kind of folklore that mm. kind of gained its own momentum in the imagination and evolved into this idea that they're they're they follow in Robert Johnson's path who was also 27 when he died and um it's a curse by the devil for having attaining that much success um in in that short of a time span is you're like doomed to die young. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at that as a myth that emerged out of a particular cultural situation and framing it as a cultural complex um, mm. and, and complexes involve a repetition compulsion and they, they have a certain narrative and they, as, as though they have a will of their own, they, they try to confirm and reiterate their own narrative. 
okay. Mm-hmm. So, so that complex and the, the myth around it, this idea that if you, you know, have, have ungodly talent and massive success, then you're doomed to burn out and die young has, has propelled itself within the culture and is still alive and got reiterated when Kurt Cobain died at 27 and 94. And then Amy Winehouse died at 27 in 2011. <clears throat> gotcha. So yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. Um, there's definitely the Dionysian element. Um, I'm, I'm using astrology as part of the analysis, uh, using archetypal astrology, which is based on the idea that each planet uh, functions as a symbol for a, a planetary archetype. And so like Pluto um, is symbolic of the Dionysian element of the psyche. Um, so gotcha. there was a 10 or 12 year long um, Pluto Uranus conjunction in the 60s going into like 70 71 when when all of those um figures passed joplin and hendrix and morrison um and pluto is like i said symbolic of dionysus the the elemental instinctual aspect of the psyche is collective it obliterates the individuals to do with intoxication and all these things and then uranus is the promethean symbolic of like the promethean liberating impulse and so in the 60s when they were together you know like occupying the same space in the zodiac um you get a blending of those two archetypal principles and there was obviously a huge unleashing and liberation uh, of the dionysian principle in the psyche like that just ripped through the culture like psychedelics and yes. drug use and sexual revolution and all kinds of things. And, um, these, the, the myth emerged out of that. Gotcha. So that's oh what my I'm gosh. unpacking. <laughs> wow. And, and are you uh, focusing on particular figures in your dissertation? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'm focusing on Winehouse, Cobain, Morrison, and Joplin. Okay. Um, cause there's, it was also Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, going back further, Robert Johnson, and then a few others that didn't quite have the same iconic status, you know, in, in the culture. Um, but I wanted to keep it to four so I could really, you know, elaborate and, and get in, in depth in each of their lives and how they, how they each lived out the Dionysian principle and kept it in the cultural awareness because of their antics and being constantly in the news and all that. Wow. Oh my gosh. It's such a fast, that's such a fascinating topic for dissertation. I don't think it would ever get dull. I'm guessing that there's always something really juicy that you're covering and writing about. And, and I just have to say, you are an incredible writer. If you haven't gotten the chance to read any of Zach's work, take that opportunity. I think you have a few things posted on your website. And then also you have written for, the personality type in depth journal. In fact, you did an article on Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. for that journal and it's really good. It's really, and I, we look forward if, if you have time later to adding to, you know, the other people that you're covering, cause it's a wonderful series that you've started there and it's so interesting. And have you, you've also written for another journal. Am I right? 
Um, yeah, Archive, the Archive. Journal of Archetypal Cosmology. Okay. Um, so please check him out there. Um, you're a really, I always say if I am reading somebody's work and I say, oh, I wish I'd said that just like that. <laughs> um, that's the greatest gift I, or the greatest compliment I can give another writer <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. myself. And that, that happens often when I'm reading your work. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's very true. And um, so I, I want to throw in an idea I have and get your feedback about Dionysus. Um, and I read this in a different Robert Johnson because there's the union Robert Johnson, oh, yeah, yeah. right? And so there's two different Robert Johnsons here we're talking about. And he he wrote the books, He, She, and We, among many other titles. But there there's this great story of his that I ran across recently where this man came to Robert Johnson, who was a, an analyst, and he said, my wife and I are going to kill each other. He's like, like every... Saturday, we get along during the week, we're busy. And then the weekend comes and Saturday rolls on and something triggers us Saturday morning. And he's like, we're at each other the entire weekend. It's starting to get physical. He said, we are not these people. We don't want to be these people. It takes us till late Sunday night to even get back to some kind of normal. And this is happening every weekend. And so he's like, I don't know what to do. And, um, He's like, I don't want to, I don't want us to come to blows with each other and right. and all that. And Robert Johnson had the most amazing uh, response to that. And this just sticks with me. And he said, you know, because there's this thought in depth psychology that the gods just want to be remembered. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's some way of doing that. And, and looking at Dionysus, I'm, I'm curious and I'll finish my story here sort of the dark side you're talking about him with the addiction and you know sort of the the dark um, implosion of a lot of these energies we could link to Bacchus like Bacchus Mm -hmm. and Dionysus are sort of two faces of a same energy perhaps you could say and like Dionysus would be sort of the the fertile, abundant, positive aspect of that, you know, the wine loving, sensual, um, even somewhat androgynous, you know, cause there's a lot of femininity in Dionysus that's, that's integrated really beautifully. And then the Bacchus aspect of that energy being the dark addiction, you know, destructive energy. Anyway, so back to the story, um, Robert Johnson said to this man, he's like, Next Saturday morning, he's like, I just want the two of you, when you start to head into it with each other, just to both stop and bow to each other and Mm -hmm. say, we honor you, Bacchus. We honor Mm -hmm. you, Bacchus. That's it. And if you got to fight, fight. And that did it. It broke the spell with this couple because there was that we are from a union and depth psychological perspective, we are all these energies and we mm-hmm. they have to have some sort of voice in us. Now, of course, collectively that's happening. And then, but even within the individual and I look at my own life and I'm like, okay, where am I giving life to Bacchus? I certainly love giving life to the Dionysian part mm-hmm. as I, as I sort of identify that in this sort of lovely juicy ways 
but I'm like, Bacchus exists too. And if I'm not giving a conscious life to Bacchus, Bacchus is going to have his due in my life one way or the other. So I just would love your feedback on either this Dionysian Bacchus um, way I've talked about that or, or that Robert Johnson um, example with what he did with that couple. And it's really interesting mm-hmm. to me. So love your feedback on that. Yeah. Um, man, there's a number of ways <laughs> to go with that. But I, I think the first thing is, yeah, any any planetary archetype in astrology or any figure in mythology or, or you know, f- force of nature in the psyche um, is ambivalent. It's, there's no one that's all good or, or, or all bad. So there's there's positive aspects to the Dionysian and the Bacchian and, and there's destructive aspects to it. And yeah, there's an, there's an idea that they, they want to be recognized and, and they force themselves into awareness symptomatically um, when they are not recognized. Um, so there's a, there's this great quote in, psychological types in, in Jung's collective work six. I can't remember exactly what it is, but he's talking about the Apollonian versus the Dionysian and in, in Nietzsche's the birth of tragedy. And on the Dionysian, he's, he talks about something that like revels in the horror of the destruction of the individual or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, and, and he talks about the two talks about being a, a religious problem for the ancient Greeks. Um, Dionysian or, or Dionysus kind of expressing their their darker, like more barbaric urges or impulses um, versus Apollo being this more aesthetic, like beautiful, shimmery kind of, mm-hmm. and, and, and that you couldn't have one without the other. Like the Greeks couldn't have imagined the, the very shimmering Olympians without this very dark recess in their psyche. And, and Nietzsche's thing was that they, through through a, a metaphysical miracle, I think he says that the Greeks um, were able to like rectify those contradicting impulses with theater, with the, the oh, tragedy. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the art with art, <laughs> yeah, and and the Dionysian element that is very fluid and. Um, like you know, the Apollo was more plastic, so like the painting and sculpture was considered like an Apollonian art form. Music was the the Dionysian because it just pours through the individual, and there's no container to it. Whereas Apollo is very contained. Contained. Yeah, and so the the two were kind of brought together in tragic plays with the musical element, and then the actors and the props and everything, and that was the way that Greek society stabilized that very intense collective inner conflict that was a religious problem for them in, in Jung's assessment. <laughs> That's, that is so, um, I mean, I'm, my mind is just reeling now thinking, where can we have art forms for the pandemic? Where can we have art forms yeah. for our political landscape? Right oh, now, God, like, yeah, that's definitely a theater. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know it. And, and and but you're you're hitting on something so vital 
so if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, sort of a, a conscious container of an artistic expression is helping the collective almost have a pressure valve for some <laughs> of this energy so that it's, we're not in the grip of it, that it's, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I truly feel just in my own observation of all the polarities, the super, super, supercharged polarities that are happening everywhere right now, whether you are vax or anti-vax or right. you know, Republican or Democrat or, you know, for the whatever, I mean, ad nauseum, these super polarities that are happening everywhere. It's from a depth psychological perspective, you know, that one way of looking at that is it's creating the third thing, right? It's giving life to a third option because to identify with either polarity is to be consumed by it and, and to, to its destructive nature, I would add, but this third life it feels like we're in attention collectively of some kind of rebirth and this is definitely one option is to have an artistic expressive container that would take some of the pressure mm-hmm. off off of us and i i would love more people to be having that conversation and you know the fact that you and i are having it is helping <laughs> um yeah. but i would you know to have more folks talking about we get so into the polarities i guess you know this side versus this side the space between in my view is where something's going to happen that tension between the two is where there's going to be something fruitful that becomes that pressure release and and something beautiful Mm -hmm. um but it is it's we can all feel the pressure can't we no matter yeah. what's going on with us personally, we can feel that collective pressure and the pandemic has only added to that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And in, there was that Pluto Uranus conjunction that I was talking about earlier, was unleashed the Dionysian into the culture in the sixties. That was when they were square. So they were 90 degrees apart. And then in, I think from like 2008, maybe to 2000, just the beginning of 2020, they they came into no i'm sorry they were they were conjunct in the 60s and they came into the next square um in the in the last like 10 or 12 years um so that would be the 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 next the first time they've been in their next uh phase of alignment you know and so you had a similar dynamics happening there's the psychedelic renaissance yes um yes. and a number of other parallels and then, in, so that so that thing colored most of the '60s, and then Saturn came into an opposition in like '65, I think. And then you had the kind of eruption of the culture wars at that point between like the like Saturn being the old and Uranus being the new. You had like the youth movement, and everyone over 30 is an enemy. <laughs> um, and then the, the same alignment has come up again. Now Saturn is square Uranus right now, just at the tail end of that um, Pluto Uranus formation. And you have the same thing again, um, the old versus the new, the empowerment of the conservative kind of backlash and um, the eruption of like emancipatory impulses and 
Mm-hmm. Yes, you can you can feel the, the kind of same schism, you know. Yes. Um, as was happening at that time, and there was a there was a, a letter that I just found where Jung was talking to a patient about a, a particularly like strong internal conflict that they were struggling with. And um, he said something along the lines of the fact that you have that strong of a, of a internal contradiction is evidence that your life is right. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I remember reading that you posted a quote about this. Yeah. That, that it's not something to resist, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we want to, we want to make ourselves wrong for that in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or to just, we want, we want the tension to be resolved by choosing one over the other generally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the same dynamic is at play in the collective psyche and it's harder to take the advice (laughs) to like the, you know, like in, as an individual, it's like, okay, he has both sides of me count i need to honor both sides of this conflict the fact that i'm in the conflict shows that i'm on the right trajectory in my own personal growth and development it's hard to look at the left and the right politically right now and take the same stance but i think it's important yes that's a that's a really great perspective sort of our spiritual maturity if you will or emotional maturity is sort of indicative of how well we can hold that discomfort Mm-hmm. for a while. I, I That's one way of looking at it. And yet, I also know that we add to our suffering. So like, is there this paradox where we can hold a disc, or an uncomfortable place without devolving into suffering? Because suffering is sort of like a mental thought we're putting with the discomfort. Mm-hmm. You know, like discomfort can just be discomfort. You know, like if you're... Right. If your stomach aches, your stomach can ache. But if you say, oh, now I have stomach cancer, then you've taken yourself into suffering and worry and all yeah, the rest yeah, yeah. of it, right? So that that nuance, which is a whole miracle to, to be in discomfort if it's necessary without adding su- a layer of suffering to that, you mm-hmm. know, with our, with our thoughts and, and belief systems and, and if... I would say identities. I think what I'm seeing a lot that seems potent um, in terms of the collective and certainly in my own life is when we're making any of these things an identity, Mm -hmm. you know, like our identity goes above and beyond any of this. Right. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we are in harmony with our greater identity as a soul or you know, these intangible parts of us, not a Republican, a Democrat, a Mm -hmm. vaxxer, an anti, you know, like when those harden into identities, I think that destructive element and that suffering gets layered in to that. How do you see, Zach, the imagination that Jung has always referred to using the imagination in, in very intentional ways? And we touched on that when we're talking about, you know, giving art form or vehicles of art expression, whether it was music or sculpture, you know, to these tensions, but how do you see intentional use of the imagination specifically Mm -hmm. helping either you, your clients or the collective? Yeah. I need to think about that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think there's lots of ways, but the, the one that jumps out to me the most is I think, I think imagination is an antidote to literalism. Mm. And I think the rigidity of literalism is what makes so much of the discomfort suffering or, or, or turns discomfort in, into suffering. So gotcha. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of literature now on like rigidity in like lack of neuroplasticity being associated with like depression and, and things like that. So if, if you can like shake up the default mode network, you know, mm -hmm. um, that helps with this, what some of this part of the interpretation as to why psilocybin and those kinds of treatments now are having so much success yes. um, with depression because it just obliterates the default mode network for a while. And then when it comes back online, you know, it's, it's more malleable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think <laughs> to a much subtler degree, I mean, what is a psychedelic trip other than a concrete experience of the imagination, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's beautifully said. <laughs> yeah. That's so, beautifully said. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think if you can approach these conflicts within yourself as an individual with in an imaginative way, holding them as symbol or as metaphor, um, already you're less likely to identify with them which which makes things rigid and concrete and literal um and so you have much more flexibility um and then i think this the same is is true on the cultural level and i i don't really have any great ideas as to how to inject more imagination into the culture i mean our, i personally i feel like the state of our art is loathsome <laughs> right now but so that's part of the problem in, in my eyes your uh bringing psychedelics into the conversation is huge and you and i among others could have a whole podcast series on that and i i think it's a really important topic of conversation and in fact i'm writing a paper on that right now myself and i'm mm -hmm. really sort of immersed in that and i like how you say um, that that just totally kind of throws the default network out the window for a minute. And, and you have just a much more supple experience of that. And there's some space around that, even when it starts to come back online and you don't see that as your identity anymore. Um, or at least there's some space around that, like that doesn't have to be my identity. And um, the literature coming out of Johns Hopkins and, and other places, um, I think the Netherlands are doing some really important research on psychedelics and like people that have, what's the term, you'll know, um, treatment resistant depression are having huge breakthroughs with intentional use of psychedelics, you know, very much in a controlled atmosphere, not just, this is not just I think it's important to note, this is not just folks getting high at a party. This is <laughs> right, not yeah. what that is. This is, you know, they often in the psychedelic literature and people who are using it intentionally, this psychedelic renaissance, they talk about set and setting all the time, like the mm -hmm. importance of set and setting. Set meaning your mindset, 
how, what your intention is for doing this. Is it to escape or is it to have some kind of a breakthrough spiritually, if you will, or psychologically or emotionally and remove some blocks? Mm -hmm. Um, and then setting, you know, having somebody look after you and help you integrate what happens. You know, this is not just, you know, Saturday night, nothing else to do. This is like somebody, you know, taking care of your body, making sure you're okay. You don't hit your head on something while you're Mm -hmm. on a trip and, you know, looking after you and helping you integrate your discoveries because you are indeed changed when Mm -hmm. you come back from such a trip, I was doing some research yesterday where I can't remember the number right off the top of my head, but a vast amount of percentage, like I think over 80% of people that had um, done a certain, I don't know if it was psilocybin, but anyway, um, linked that experience with top five, if not top one experience of their life. So like you have childbirth, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, your psychedelic trip as having been a pivot point in your life. And I know that is true for me. And like, I can't even get drunk properly. I'm like, I'm not even, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just not, this is not kind of how I'm wired, but, and I will talk about this in future podcasts and episodes, but had a very intentional encounter and use with with a substance for these purposes and it totally changed my life and and perspective Mm -hmm. so i i see when you're bringing the cosmology into this and our collective into this the fact that there's this psychedelic renaissance happening right now is a very powerful way that image and imagination Mm -hmm. is is really um, in a big way coming into the culture. And, and um, I think it's super exciting and, and it's the way we approach it, that set and setting. If those are solid, if those are not for reasons of escaping or you know trying to bury our head in the sand, I think these can be incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I just think of the word psychedelic. I was like, you have the word psyche, and delic in there you know like just like psychology i i always had one view of what is psychology and i'm like it's really the ology of the psyche and i had you know when you sort of break it down and when you think of psychedelic you know sort of the the it's bringing in i don't know my latin roots here real well but sort of would you say the experiential part of the psyche um, yeah. What would you the, say? I, there, I can't remember. It's psyche and like Dahlia or I, I don't, I don't remember. Del- yeah. Delia or something. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I th- if I remember right, it means psyche or mind creating or generating, I think like it, it if you think of it, it's so funny. If you think of Sil- Hillman's soul making, like it's oh, very okay. much the same thing. It makes soul, it creates soul. psyche. It creates, um, it creates psyche. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love I th- that. I idea. think I might be okay. Um, mis- I, I don't think I'm misquoting it, but I'm not certain. So, um, right. and and there's and you can't pin this down. Like this is, it's so organic. And like even folks that have are like, let's say going through a two or three treatment protocol, like through Johns Hopkins, where there's a really loving, controlled environment that they might be experimenting to help with depression or whatever. Each. Each trip, if you will, 
is revealing entirely different things than the last one. You know, like it's not yeah, like you never know what having, you're going to get. <laughs> exactly. You're not just having three experiences that are similar. It's almost like it, to me, it begs the question, who's in charge of the trip, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is its own. Okay. I'm looking at the time. Do you have a little bit more time or do we need to wrap mm-hmm. this up? Yeah. I'm not on a, um, a solid okay. time frame. So today. like if we take maybe 15 more minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're back on. What did you find out about psychedelic? Yeah, it's, so it's psyche, which is Greek for soul. And um, I don't know how to say it. Day loan, which is to make visible or to reveal. Oh, wow. So yeah, to wow. reveal the soul is <laughs> oh, pretty wild. <laughs> that is pretty wild. Yeah. And, you know, just from my own experience, man, you are not thinking about vaccines or Republicans or Democrats, <laughs> even masculine and feminine. Like even in my experience of that, I looked at all my beloveds, like my husband, my children, my children. And I'm like, I love you all. But like, if I don't ever see you again, it's fine. Which was so weird because (laughs) like my love for them was bigger than it had ever been. But I just felt like I can't lose them. I'm part of them or something Mm. to that effect. Again, this is a whole topic for another podcast, but, um, that that feeling of unity and connection was so profound that it it was sort of beyond the containers of of even human beings you know it was beyond um personality or any of that or any of the outer clothing that we wear as humans it was just like i'm i am love and i am connected to all of you and i can't lose you and i am you know you're precious to me and it was just part of this incredible psyche made visible is just really the way to say that. And it's the experiential quality to that, you know, like I've been tracking these threads my whole life. This is how my brain feels happy. How my heart feels happy is, is reading and learning about these things. But the psychedelic in in my view was an experience of psyche, which is way different than an intellectual understanding or concept as beautiful as that can be to have it be a full body experience is a way different thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it makes me think of Job in the Bible saying like, I'd I'd read about God or heard about God or whatever, but I just experienced the living God. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, And you don't, you don't go back in that door. I mean, you, when you go through that door, then you're just like, okay, who am I now? Who am Mm -hmm. I now? Yeah. I'm not who I was before or who I thought I was before. Yeah. Yeah. Like in, uh, in, in my practice, I should note that in North Carolina, almost none of these things are legal, um, outside of a, uh, study. Right. Um, right. But ketamine is. And, oh, is it? And, okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Ketamine is, is used as a, for treatment resistant depression. Okay. Um, and so I have a, a number of clients I've had now that um, I, I'm not an MD or anything, so I can't give ketamine, but um, there's lots of providers locally where they go get their dose of ketamine, but there's no integration or, or talk therapy component to it. So in our work together, then we like try to unpack the experiences and integrate them into 
their worldview and all, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Um, and I love that bit of the work. Um, and it is definitely not for the faint of heart. <laughs> you can just as much as you can experience unity with the force of love in the universe, you can also be torn apart and dismembered in hell (laughs) in a very concrete and experiential way. So yeah, both are valuable and meaningful. um, But for that reason that, you know, I don't recommend people do it on a whim. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. That's going back to that set and setting. I mean, it's, it's so important that um, the integration of what you encounter with somebody else who has sort of uh, traveled those ropes is essential because it, it can be very, and, and you can speak to this having dealt with it with clients, but it's can be very destabilizing about your sense of self um, and, and then what to do with that. Um, so like it's, it's thrilling on the one hand, but you have to very gently bring that back home so that you're not just sort of untethered in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be, it can, everybody's experience is unique. Um, but it, it, there's, there's sometimes that it can kind of spill out. Like you, you get untethered in the moment, but it's not as though like at the end of the night, everything's back to homeostasis necessarily. So, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but there's an idea of, in, in Jung's synchronicity theory that like synchronicities are more probable in moments of an activated archetype oh. and you, you swim in the archetypal waters in a psychedelic experience. And so they are very activated and sometimes it can like spill over and you'll experience synchronicities and that sense of connection, you know, can, can be experienced when you're no longer high. <laughs> and then people are like, Oh my God, am I, am I psychotic? Am I delusional? Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like everyone is, you know, the thing on the TV spoke very clearly to this (laughs) thing I was contemplating after this trip as though it was a message to me, which is like ideas of reference, which is a a tick on the psychotic, (laughs) you know? So if you don't, if you don't do it with somebody who knows, who can tell you like, oh yeah, that's part of this, (laughs) you know, this, this is a framework of ideas, uh, you know, how to hold that, how to make sense of it, how to make meaning of it. If, if you don't have that, you, you, you can get in a negative feedback loop of like thinking you're delusional and then looking for reasons to confirm that you're delusional and you can spiral, you know? So. Well, that's, I'm so glad you bring that up. And I, and we're, I'm just already going to schedule us for another podcast where we just <laughs> talk about psychedelics and therapy and treatment and and what's going on there because I this is so important and it's so cutting edge mm-hmm. and it like you say it has to be done so um, mindfully and thoughtfully and and with a lot of support around the experience um so I, I definitely want to get back to that topic with you and we can bring Kelsey in on that because she sort yeah. of has a mental health background as well and I I just, yeah, we're going to do that. I'm just already scheduling that. Okay. Um, (laughs) Before I dive into the Proust questionnaire, because again, I could 
I could talk to you all day. Um, Is there anything you would like to share with us about Dionysia, your podcast or death coach? Oh yeah. Well, both are more or less on hold. Um, I wanted to get them up on the website when I was getting ready to launch private practice. So right now they're just kind of like placeholders on the website. I, I wrote a couple death coaches of blog right now, basically, okay. which is my thoughts on whatever it might be. So far it's been fairly sociopolitical. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, just the, the whole purpose of it is to honor the death experience. I think we have a, a disproportionate, like, like overvaluation of the sort of heroic trajectory and we don't appreciate tragedy and death. Um, so the, the blog is about that, like living well also means dying well. And instead of focusing on what does the, what does this mean or do for my life and my accomplishments and stuff, what does this thing mean for my death? Um, so I enjoy that. I'm gonna, I want to try to make that a regular thing, but that's probably not going to happen until like mid-2022. Um, and then the Dionysia is a podcast. Um, and it's again, a, a, a nod to the, to Nietzsche and the birth of tragedy and the importance of art and theater. And so I'm, it'll be a, basically a film podcast on film, popular film, um, doing symbolic analysis of popular films and what they mean for the culture. Like, is, is, is this film an image coming out of this tension um, so, I mean, it just films like uh, the Joker that came out in, mm, mm-hmm. um, I think 2020, right at the tail end of that um, Pluto Uranus, while Saturn and Pluto were conjunct. If you look at like that Joker versus the Joker in the sixties, which both embody that kind of trickster mm-hmm. figure, like the Joker in 2020 is just so dark and heavy with like that Saturnian. Yes. Like, ugh, it's so good. I mean, that's so meaningful. So in, um, that's what Dionysia is going to be about eventually is I'll, I'll be picking films and unpacking the symbolism. And my good friend, Matt Hammett is going to be my co-host. He has like the most amazing memory of anybody I know. <laughs> and he's, <laughs> he's a, a, a film geek. So like, whereas I look for the Jungian stuff, like he knows the director and every other film the director's ever done and how it relates to his previous films and reflects his growth as a director and everything. So I think we'll have like really cool conversations that I will be tuning in. That is so juicy and fascinating to me. And, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, when you bring up Joker, Oh my God, (laughs) that guy. And okay. And guess what? He also, guess what role he also did in, in a fairly close proximity to that Joker is um, he did uh, Magdalene, which, ah. so he played Jesus Christ. So, yeah. I mean, talk about a range. And I, I watched that for the first time this summer, um, Magdalene. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Magdalene. Anyway, um, and he plays Jesus. And there's a scene, the Lazarus scene and, and how he navigates that as an actor. I had mm-hmm. never seen that done mm-hmm. from that perspective. And there's just something really 
archetypal about Joaquin yeah. Phoenix. Yeah, I was gonna know, say, I've never even seen that film and I don't know what you're talking about, but I know Joaquin Phoenix and I get goosebumps. Thinking oh my God, yeah, just check that out. I mean, it's a, yeah. that film, in my opinion, is um, takes a lot of patience. It's very subtle. Mm. Um, it's very slow moving. It's not like bells and whistles, but it's definitely worth the dive for sure. But that image that he creates in that scene of the Lazarus bringing, bringing somebody back to life, Mm. um, is it, it's part of my psyche now. And, And to know that he did that in relatively close creative proximity to Joker. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He He, he he is amazing. He was in a film called um, You Were Never Really Here, where he's he's a sort of traumatized veteran um, that uh, I think he does. He's basically like hired. He's just like a hired violence. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. And it's incredible. Like there's certain people. And I think this is part of the the 27 Club phenomenon. Those artists musicians or actors or whatever for whatever reason some people seem to be able to embody whatever is sort of stirring in the depths in such a visceral way mm-hmm. you know that and to, to me Joaquin Phoenix is one of those people I mean and when you watch you were never really here like you you f- you feel within you what it's like to walk through life dissociated after being traumatized and it's yeah. just so good <laughs> oh my gosh it's it's i know i i there aren't even words and is he past 27 i'm hoping so oh yeah yeah i, I think he's i don't know how old he is but <laughs> like maybe, maybe maybe more around 40 ish or something that's or, what i would guess yeah okay but his brother river phoenix died oh that's and I'm, right i'm curious how old he was now i don't, yeah, I don't know the answer to that wow Wow. This is all, um, I, I mean, I could riff off all this all day long. I find it so nourishing and, and important. And um, just having these conversations helps me process, just, you know, put a little perspective around the pandemic, the collective, all that's going on there. Because you're like, there are other options. And if we feed those, if we feed those with our attention and our imagination, that is helping in and of itself right there. Um, I want to bring a little synchronicity in here. I've got the dice and I want to find out a little bit about you um, in particular. And just like in all my deeper rhythm dives, we use the Proust questionnaire and um, we just let the dice pick and Zach's willing to just answer whatever comes up. So is there anything you'd like to add before we do this? Well, just thanks for having me. This has been great. It's my pleasure and and we will do more together and we'll get Kelsey back in the loop. And definitely there's so much interesting, good work going on here in Asheville and you and I together and the connections we have through school and the rest Mm -hmm. of it. Um, We'll have many great conversations and collaborations coming up. And I, I'm deeply honored to be traveling with you in that way. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to, Number nine. Oh my God. You're not going to believe this. If you've been listening to my podcast, 
this question has come up <laughs> in all but one. Oh, really? My, yes. On what occasion do you lie? Oh, interesting. On what occasion do I lie? Uh, when I'm not in particularly invested, probably oh, okay. the most frequent. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure there are occasions when I am just insecure or, you know, being defensive or deflective in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think white lies are the most common for me when I just like don't want to engage because <laughs> I'm not, not interested. Not interested. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. Gotcha. So the fact that you didn't tell me you didn't have time for this podcast, I should take as a good thing. Oh, with my, yeah, yeah. yeah. That means I'm interested. <laughs> or, or, yeah. Because you're interested, right? You could yeah. have said, hey, I don't have time for that, which actually is true. I know you don't, but I'm so <laughs> glad you did. I'm so glad you took the time. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm rolling again. Um, number four. What is the trait you most deplore in others? Willful ignorance. Mm. That one's easy for me. I hate, yeah. hate that. <laughs> yep. Are you seeing that more in the collective than anywhere right now? Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's always been something that I hate about my own culture. <laughs> um, but it's just closer to home than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure part of my, I'm sure that reflects a little bit of my own inflation and like holier than thou places I can go to um, because the informa information landscape is just shambolic right now. So I can sometimes understand people's ignorance, but when there's not even an effort to like step out of that a little bit and be a little more conscientious about how to navigate a broken information landscape, then it's, then I'm judgy. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I deplore you. that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And, and that's all we can do is when you are somewhat conscious of your own piece and what, why you might be triggered by that. That's all we can do. You know, that is, as long as we have that awareness in there that that's we're doing our part as a facilitator or a therapist or a life coach or whatever it's like yeah i probably have a piece in this but yeah the willful the willful ignorance we're seeing a lot of a lot of that on the national stage right now um yeah. and and in the news just yeah just regularly just, my my puppy has just joined us here. Here's oh, Tippy. She, she just got back from her walk. I promised my husband I wouldn't run over an hour, and here we are. And but I, like I said, I knew that would happen with with you and I. So <laughs> one last question here. Number six. What is your greatest extravagance? Huh. My greatest extravagance. That's an interesting question. Uh, probably my imagination. <laughs> I'm much oh. more extravagant in my imagination than I am in real life. <laughs> I thought you were going to say expensive coffee and tea. 
Oh yeah, I am pretty snobby about <laughs> coffee. Um, yeah, that's good. Well, I, you know, I'm extravagant when I played music. I have like fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment in a storage unit that I don't even use. So I, I'd say that's pretty <laughs> extravagant. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, thank you so much for taking the time today and we'll be talking more soon. Okay, that sounds okay. great. All right, I'll put all your links in the show notes. Much love to you, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Yeah, thanks. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Bye.
Hi, everyone. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if my work is nourishing your heart and imagination, consider supporting the Apothecary Podcast. Just follow the links to make a contribution. And for the full scope of my projects and offerings, including my weekly newsletter, visit lorigreen.net.